Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of March 23rd, 2023. I'm Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Golden considers a net zero policy for new construction by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. A family-owned bar has been in the community for over 30 years by Olivia Jewell Love for the Jeffco Transcript. Arvada Center announces five theater productions for 2023-2024 season. The Laramie Project, Cinderella, Beautiful, The Carol King Musical, and more coming to Arvada Stage by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. National Award comes to Samson, RVHS grad and swimmer by Steve Smith for the Arvada Press and following up with various articles. Golden considers a net zero policy for new construction by Corinne Westman. Within a year or two, all new buildings in Golden could be free of fossil fuels and generate their own electricity with renewable energy sources. That means everything from single-family homes to large industrial complexes would be net zero. Officials are drafting ordinance language to require net zero construction in Golden, and city council is expected to consider it later this year. Under the proposal, all new buildings would generate their own electricity via solar panels and wouldn't have any natural gas utilities. While this proposal only applies to new construction, Golden has long-term goals toward existing buildings. The city wants to achieve 100% renewable energy for electricity by 2030 and 100% renewable for heating by 2050, according to its 2020 Sustainability Strategic Plan. In the coming weeks, the Community Sustainability Advisory Board and the Planning Commission will co-host three community meetings to gather public feedback on this net-zero construction proposal. The meetings will be March 27th, April 3rd, and April 18th, and each will be at 6 to 8.30 p.m. at City Hall. According to Teresa Warsham, the City's Sustainability Manager, Each meeting will focus on a different subtopic within the overall net zero construction proposal. The March 27th meeting will discuss the proposed renewable energy requirements for all new construction, including single family homes. The meeting will explore instances where installing solar panels or other renewable energy sources isn't feasible and what alternatives could be established such as cash-in-lieu system or participation in a solar garden. The April 3rd meeting will discuss the proposed all-electric requirements and new construction, meaning new buildings wouldn't have any natural gas utilities. Worsham said city officials want to hear about what kind of hardships people might have building but without natural gas and explore, quote, what alternative compliant pathways might look like. The April 18th meeting will take a closer look at what exactly falls under new construction, as Warsham said. While the easiest definition is anything built on a vacant lot, Warsham said Goldenites need to examine whether and how that should include other additions, remodels, and other projects. CSAB has been working on this proposal for several months and recently brought it to City Council. During the meeting, public comment on net zero construction was mixed. Most applauded the general effort, but had questions or concerns about the exact language and applicability. One person wondered how it would apply to historic buildings that undergo remodels or construct additions. Those are exactly the type of things city officials and community members will discuss at these meetings, Warsham said. Quote, We want to have some common sense about it she said, of implementing a net-zero construction policy. For all new construction across the board, we want those new buildings to be responsible, to generate their energy on-site, and be the most efficient that they can be. 
as Colorado and the United States experiences more natural disasters and other threats to utilities, Worsham emphasized how important it is for Goldenites to have energy independence and resiliency. Even if a project can't install enough solar panels to cover 100% of its usage, quote, at least it's giving some relief to resiliency, she continued. Between local, state, and federal incentives, solar panels are more affordable than ever, she stated. They are very resilient against weather, including hail. In the last 15 years, Worsham said she's only had to replace a few panels because of vandalism, but not weather. Solar panels can last up to 30 years, and a solar panel electric system typically pays for itself in 7 to 9 years, she said. The solar panels on the city's buildings generate 650 kilowatts, and Golden installed the bulk of them in 2014. Right now, seven of the city's buildings are net zero, so it can be done. Colorado School of Mines also has numerous solar panels on its campus, including a relatively new solar canopy over the parking lot near Sturmall Soccer Stadium. By the end of this year, Mines officials estimate all its solar panels will generate 5-6% to 6 of the university's total electric usage. As cities around Colorado and the United States look to become more sustainable, Worsham said a lot of communities are discussing similar net-zero construction policies. Golden and several neighboring cities are going to have to draft their own plans on when and how to implement these goals, she described. After the community meetings this spring, Worsham said city officials will continue drafting the ordinance language. They'll likely bring it before city council in the last few months of 2023, she estimated. For more information, visit guidinggolden.com slash net dash zero dash buildings. A family-owned bar has been in the community for over 30 years. By Olivia Jewell Love, the Jeffco Transcript. When we were first thinking of the name, we were sitting around and someone said, Oh, fiddlesticks, said owner Diane Manning. And that's how Fiddlesticks Bar and Grill in Lakewood got its name. Fiddlesticks Bar and Grill has been family owned by Diane Manning and Tom Leonard for 33 years. Their son, Mike Manning, was running around as a toddler collecting change from under the tables when they got their start. Now he's helping run the place. What started as a little bar on the corner of Kipling and Jewel turned into an establishment with a scratch kitchen and craft cocktail menu. We sell more food than we do alcohol, Manning said. Everything we make is from scratch. The menu boasts normal bar fare like burgers, wraps, and wings, and also inventive dishes like its St. Patrick's Day menu, which featured festive cuisine including shepherd's pie, beer cheese, and soft pretzels and more. While they sell a lot of beer, Manning said the craft cocktails do quite well with syrups, teas, juices, and other elements prepped in-house. What it comes down to, according to Manning, are, quote, those extra steps in the craft cocktails, the food and the effort. Keeps people coming back. Staff said the crowd is generally older during the week with younger bargoers visiting on the weekends. Fiddlesticks has two pool tables for guests to play at. Manning and Leonard also own Manning Steaks and Spirits in Lakewood, which sees even more of the craft cocktails and detailed food menu. Fiddlesticks is open from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. on Sundays, 10 a.m. to 11 p.m. Monday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. on Fridays, and 9 a.m. to 2 a.m. on Saturdays. Arvada Center announces five theater productions for 2023-2024 season. The Laramie Project, Cinderella, Beautiful, The Carol King Musical, and more coming to Arvada Stage by Riley Dunn. The Arvada Center recently announced its upcoming slate of theater productions, unveiling five shows that will be put on by the theater company during the 2023-24 season. Season tickets went on sale on March 13th, while individual tickets will go on sale on July 1st. Tickets for three to four shows are also available. 
Last year, the Arvada Center put on six productions, but scaled back this year in an effort to support the stage's staff, according to Colorado Public Radio. The following five shows will come to the Arvada Center stage over the next 18 months. Beautiful, the Carol King musical. When? September 8th to October 8th. What? A jukebox musical based on the life and career of Carol King, who grew up a shy Jewish girl from Manhattan and later became one of the most renowned singer-songwriters in the world. The Tony and Grammy-winning musical Biopic features hits like You Make Me Feel Like, A Natural Woman, Up on the Roof, and So Far Away. The Laramie Project. When? September 29th to November 5th. What? The Laramie Project explores the reaction to the murder of gay college student Matthew Shepard in Laramie, Wyoming in 1998 by culling together interviews from over 60 real-life characters representing their reactions to the crime. The production tackles the prejudice, hatred, and compassion brought to light by Shepard's death. Cinderella. When? November 24th to December 31st. What? Just in time for the holidays, Roger and Hammerstein's Cinderella will bring cheer to Arvada residents this winter. The contemporary take on the classic fairy tale has won the hearts of theater lovers for decades. Natasha Pierre, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. When? February 16th through March 31st, 2024. What? Nominated for 12 Tonys when it premiered in 2012, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 tells the story of a young girl, Natasha, who arrives in Moscow longing for her fiancé, and Pierre, a man having an existential crisis intent on saving Natasha's reputation. Noise is off. March 22nd to May 5th, 2024. What? A meta look at the inner workings of theater production. This play within a play is a high-level energy laugh fest that's sure to leave theater lovers and casual fans satisfied. Noise is off. Imagines a scenario in which everything that could go wrong with the stage production does to hilarious effect. National Award comes to Samson, RVHS grad and swimmer by Steve Smith. Colorado Mesa University's Ben Sampson is this year's College Swimming and Diving Coaches Association NCAA Division II Men's Swimmer of the Year. Sampson, a redshirt sophomore who graduated from Ralston Valley High School, was one of 21 Maverick swimmers, 12 women, 9 men, who earned at least one first-time, first-team All-American honor, according to a statement from CMU. Samson is the first Maverick swimmer to receive the honor. Samson led the way for the Mavericks, winning the national title in both the 200-yard individual medley and 200 backstroke. He is the first male swimmer in CMU history to win a title after Lily Borgenheimer became the first women swimmer to do so last year in the 200 breaststroke. He had also set the NCAA Division II record of 140. 73, 139.53, altitude adjusted, in November during the TYR CMU Invitational. According, swimming and head diving coach from around the nation voted on CSCAA's major awards. First team All-American status goes to the top eight finishers in each event. Second team picks go to the ninth through 16th place finishers. Sampson was also an all-American in all seven of his events, picking up six first-team honors after finishing third in the 400 individual medley, fourth in the 100 back, fifth in the 800 freestyle relay, and eighth in the 200 medley relay. He also helped the Mavs to a ninth-place finish in the 400 medley relay and is now a 14-time All-American over the last two seasons. That total is the second highest in program history behind only Mohamed Al-Gayar, who 
received two more All-America honors to complete his brilliant career with 15 total honors. He received at least one in each of his five seasons. Six other swimmers, five men, one woman, earned second-team All-Americans. MSU put together 24 top eight finishes in the two-day national meet. The CMU men placed a program best fifth at the national meet. Blame Utah for state's air pollution. The EPA does. By Michael Booth, the Colorado Sun. There's a new strategy in Colorado's fight against dangerous ozone air pollution. Blame Utah. Coal-fired power plants and oil and gas drilling in northeastern Utah are responsible for ozone drifting to the east into Colorado's nine-county non-attainment zone for the pollutant, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. The amount of ozone that Utah is pumping toward Colorado violates the federal good neighbor rules of the Clean Air Act, which have been used in the past to force eastern states to clean up coal plants to help downwind states. The EPA rejected Utah's state implementation plan, SIP, for cutting ozone in February and told the state to prepare more cuts, including adding expensive scrubbing equipment to a handful of coal power plants in Utah and Wyoming. Utah's legislature agreed something needed to be done and set aside $2 million for legal fees to sue the EPA and avoid the extra cleanup. Utah is not being a good neighbor, said Robert Ukaili, Colorado's senior attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity, a nonprofit that works extensively on air pollution issues and the Clean Air Act. The neighbors in the form of the Utah Attorney General's office declined comment, citing the lawsuit Utah filed in February to block the EPA's bad neighbor declaration. In voting to fund the lawsuit, Utah lawmakers argued the EPA ruling would force closure of vital power plants, though environmental groups say effective control equipment can greatly reduce the pollutants. Colorado environmental groups want the Colorado state government to intervene with the EPA in favor of the Utah restrictions. Backing up the EPA should be part of Colorado's overall ozone fight which they say should also include tougher restrictions at home on front-range oil and gas drilling and transportation emissions. It's the equivalent of free money in the difficult battle to reduce ozone, which has been declining but then leveled off and began rising again in recent years. There's an opportunity for Colorado to, do, to join in a lawsuit to help reduce pollution, but the Polis administration has decided not to, Ukaili said. Colorado regulators said in a statement they are monitoring the good neighbor case against Utah. We have not joined the EPA good neighbor suits in the past, according to a Colorado of Department of Public Health and Environment spokesperson. We are laser focused on continuing the work to protect clean air in Colorado for all. It's too bad, you Kylie added. States on the East Coast join such lawsuits frequently in order to bolster the case against their ill-behaving neighbor states. But Colorado never does that, he said. The EPA's proposed restrictions on Utah, which the agency says would take effect in mid-March, are part of a sweeping effort to declare good neighbor sanctions for 26 states under the Clean Air Act. The EPA reduced the ceiling on cities' ozone allowances in 2015 to 70 parts per billion which some scientists argue the limits should be far lower to protect human health. An EPA fact sheet accompanying the Good Neighbor proposal says it will cut ozone-contributing nitrogen oxide by 29% from power generation across those states, saving lives, reducing asthma, and preventing other respiratory illnesses. By 2026, the EPA says... The rules would eliminate up to 1,000 premature deaths, 2,400 hospital and emergency room visits, and 1.3 million cases of asthma symptoms. 
the EPA's justification for the new good neighbor rulings published in the Federal Register says the agency's well-established monitoring methods show Utah contributing more than one the 1% threshold of regulated substances to other states. Its highest level contribution is 1.29 parts per billion to Douglas County, Colorado, the EPA said. That number appears small, but the Colorado Air Quality Control Commission and the Regional Air Quality Council spent countless hours discussing strategies and policies to potentially shave a part or two per billion off summer ozone levels in the Front Range non-attainment area. Readings in recent summers have spiked above 80 parts per billion at some monitors. Some recent policy efforts have focused on reducing ozone-causing emissions from small engine lawn and garden equipment, which state officials estimate contribute about 2.5 parts per billion to daily ozone, daily summer ozone. The Colorado oil and gas industry seeking to head off further regulation has pointed to the same state emissions list that attributes more than half of daily ozone to background sources, including naturally occurring ozone and precursors blown in from out of state, including the West Coast and Asia. One of the EPA's proposed solutions to ozone problems in other states has been a cap-and-trade program, where a state in violation of good neighbor policies must set an overall limit on emissions such as nitrogen oxide. Companies, including power generators, then decide what is the most efficient way for them to reach those limits, whether buying and installing scrubbing equipment or acquiring credits from other companies that are below their limits. Environmental groups call the good neighbor rules some of the most effective tools the EPA has to combat ozone. And note that the 2023 EPA proposal for cap and trade adds in new sources to control. Those include engines used in pumping natural gas through pipelines, cement kilns, paper mills, and oil and gas refineries. Those rules have saved thousands or tens of thousands of lives by reducing air pollution, Ukiley said. If there's any remaining good news for Colorado out of the EPA actions, it's that Colorado is not among the 26 states the agency has declared to be a bad neighbor to someone else. You're welcome, Kansas. But Coloradans shouldn't get smug, Ukiley said, as long as the state fails to contain its own ozone problem. The EPA has not found us to be an upwind state, he said. We disagree with that. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Jeannie Ritter is still working to break mental health stigma by Jennifer Brown, the Colorado Sun. Jeannie Ritter jokes that she could have chosen bicycle helmets as her first lady cause while her husband, Bill, was Colorado governor. At least she could have counted the number of children who received a helmet and declared her goal achieved. Instead, the former teacher who grew up in a family affected by severe mental illness chose something much messier. She spent four years traveling Colorado to talk about mental health, ditching the pantsuits early on for a jean jacket and cowboy boots, all part of her plan to seem more approachable and get people to open up about their struggles. When the Ritters left the governor's mansion in 2011, the former first spouse continued her mission, becoming a mental health ambassador for WellPower, which is Denver's community mental health center. For the next decade, she spoke to clubs and forums across the state and co-chaired a task force that helped rewrite Colorado's civil commitment laws. Ritter, 64, recently retired, but remains an advocate for increased access to mental health care. In an interview with The Sun at her home in Denver's Platte Park, Ritter praised a new law signed by Governor Jared Polis that will allow psychologists to write mental health prescriptions. 
She also explained how artificial intelligence software could help overworked therapists determine which messages are the most urgent based on the stress in a caller's voice. Ritter is credited with elevating the conversation quite literally at a time when mental health crisis wasn't a universal topic. When her husband took office in 2007, she attended mental health policy discussions in churches and basements. Later, she said she was pushing the elevator button to the highest floor in the building, like floor 12, to talk to executives and policymakers. Ritter spoke to the son about what it's become a lifelong goal to break stigma and build access to mental health care in Colorado. Here's part of that conversation, edited for length and clarity. The son. Like many others, when Ritter talked about the importance of mental health reform, she referenced one person in her family with severe illness. Then she realized a year or so after becoming Colorado's first spouse that she was thinking about it all wrong. Ritter's sister had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and the family grew up navigating mental hospitals, medications, and stigma. After their mother died, Ritter took over caring for her sister and even moved her and her two chihuahuas into the governor's mansion to help get her stabilized. Ritter, I have a correction to make because during that time I often cited my sister who had a diagnosis. We were a family that navigated that whole thing. Institutions were new again, and the meds, and just the severity of her illness and how it impacted us. And then I heard a woman speak, and her point was, it's not just one person in your family. Then I realized she was right. Like, I was trying to talk about this topic in a more narrow fashion about an individual when, if I stepped back, it was like, wait a minute. What about the addiction in our family? What about my own anxiety? So that was very helpful to shift from talking about those individuals to all of us are somewhere on the continuum. Son, unlike counting bike helmets, success is hard to measure when it comes to improving mental health. Ritter acknowledges that she didn't accomplish some of her big ideas, including trying to coordinate all of the state's suicide prevention programs under one agency. Ritter, there were things I thought I could change. I had a dreamy vision of unifying all the suicide prevention efforts in the state, which are heartbreaking. But one is named for Rachel, and another is named for Jason, and another is named for this school. But what I celebrate is the link to science. Let's start with compassion and try to get an understanding. But when brain science came on board, that was just fantastic. People could understand the impacts of brain injuries and soldiers returning from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan with concussion injuries from explosives. We were normalizing it. Son. In 2007, Ritter felt like she was walking on eggshells the first time she was invited to give speeches about mental health or attend conferences where sometimes men were in one room and she was in another talking to their wives. She didn't want to say the wrong words and offend people. She also did not feel like an expert at all, but she realized quickly that her first goal was to get people to open up. Ritter. People were like, she's a first lady. Let's put her on this. And I was totally unprepared. I would finish with smaller groups. Are there any questions? We can make this into a conversation. It was button lipped. Like nobody had anything to say. And I'm like, hey, this is crusty stuff. Like maybe you don't recognize your husband. He's knocking off a six pack in front of the TV every night, falling asleep. This could be depression. He's the only one at work and everyone else has lost their job and he's got no cronies and men are crappy at making friends. And nobody would say anything. And then when you go into the restroom, they just pounce on you. They're like, oh, I can't believe you said that's because it's just what my husband is doing. But there's no way they were going to raise their hand. No one wanted to be first. I have firefighter friends and they're like, it's the worst thing. People step out over every, some people step over somebody who's passed out and dial 911. Everybody has to respond, which is a huge cost. So what if you had a way to say this young man, this young woman needs some support? 
I'm not going to be the one, but there is a number I can call where somebody can come and check on them. They are bus drivers and they think she's drunk. We're all in this together. You get this line, I didn't take this job to be a counselor. That's not what we're asking you to do. We just want you to know what to do next. Somebody had a great line. We're a small community. We don't have a burn unit in this community. But we need people in this community that when we have somebody who is a serious burn victim, they know what to do with that burn victim immediately and where to get them next. What a great template for how we provide care. Son. In the dozen years after her husband was governor, people have gotten much more outspoken about mental health. When a young relative was going through severe depression, Ritter stepped in to help her get an appointment. Several members of the older generation wanted to keep it quiet, but the young person posted about the saga on her social media account. It was an example of how much more open the conversation has become, Ritter said. Ritter. Name me a gathering. You can't have a city council meeting. You can't have a school board meeting without it. This is a topic now that lives among us. And how long do we want to use the word crisis with it? It's valuable sometimes to use the word crisis. It's okay to say the word crisis, as long as we're not hiding behind that word. We get to flap our hands and it's like hands on the cheek, but using the word crisis, it's legit as long as it keeps the conversation moving forward. Where to find food assistance programs in Denver metro area. More in need after SNAP benefits decrease by Ellis Arnold. Low income households face a tighter budget this month as the program that helps families in Colorado buy food. So it's pandemic era funding boost come to an end. Coloradans who receive benefits from the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, had received an extra amount of benefits every month since March 2020 in response to the coronavirus pandemic. The extra amount, or emergency allotments, were authorized by Congress, but they ended due to a recent congressional action. A final emergency allotment was issued in February according to Colorado Department of Human Services. If you're struggling with the drop in benefits, it may help to turn to local programs and organizations. Here's a look at the local government departments or food pantries in your area and how to contact them. Make sure to ask or check their websites for any requirements. Adams County. The Adams County Food Bank sits at 7111 East 56th Avenue in Commerce City, just west of Quebec Street and a bit north of Interstate 270. It's open 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Wednesday through Friday. Reach it at 720-878-3563 or see adamscountyfoodbank.org. For a list of other food banks and pantries, see the county's website at adamscountycovid19, the numbers 19 dot org slash food banks dash and dash pantries but be sure to check that the services are current for other assistance contact adams county human services department at 720-523-2700 or 303-375-2980 for the aurora part of adams county or c a at or c ad co gov org slash human dash services. The Human Services Department has locations at 11860 North Pico Street in Westminster, a short drive west of Interstate 25 and south of 120th Avenue, and at 3155 North Chambers Road, Unit C in Aurora near Smith Road and south of Interstate 70. Arapahoe, Douglas, and Albert Counties. Integrated Family Community Services, a nonprofit near Inglewood, provides food and other low-income support to families across the South Metro region. IFCS has a service area of western Arapahoe and northern Douglas counties, including Inglewood, Sheridan, Littleton, Centennial, Highlands Ranch, Glendale, Lone Tree, and Greenwood Village. 
The service area also included southwest Denver neighborhoods, south of Jewel Avenue and west of Santa Fe Drive. IFCS sits at 3370 South Irving Street in the Sheridan area, northwest of Federal Boulevard and Hampton Avenue. It's open 8 a.m. noon and 1 to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. Reachable at 303-789-0501 or cifcs.org. Farther southeast, Secor Cares, S-E-C-O-R Cares in Parker, serves the residents of Arapahoe, Douglas, and Elbert counties with a food pantry open from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Wednesday and Thursday and 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Friday and Saturday. New guests should arrive one hour before closing time for the intake process. Returning guests should arrive 30 minutes before closing. See secorcares.com, S-E-C-O-R-C-A-R-E-S.com or call 720-842-5621. Secor Cares sits at 17151 Pine Lane in Parker, just east of Jordan Road. In Elbert County, the food bank of Kiowa Creek Community Church operates from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Mondays, 3 to 6 p.m. Tuesdays, and 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. the second Friday of each month. Call 303-243-6500 or see kiowacreek.org, K-I-O-W-A creek.org slash who-we-r slash food bank dash of dash kiowa dash creek dash community dash church it's located at 231 cheyenne street in kiowa about one block north of the intersection of state highway 86 and pawnee street for more resources see information from the following county human services departments arapahoe county human services Located 14980 East Alameda Drive in Aurora, east of Sable Boulevard, and east of Interstate 225. Call 303-636-1130 or see resources at arapahogov.com slash 388 slash human dash services. Douglas County Human Services, located at 4400 Castleton Road in Castle Rock, accessible via Castleton Drive south of Meadows Parkway, just west of Interstate 25. Call 303-688-4825 or see a list of many resources, including for food, at douglas.co.us slash human dash services slash resources slash community dash resources. Elbert County Human Services, located at 75 Ute Avenue in Kiowa, a short drive north of State Highway 86, Call 303-621-3149 or see albertcounty-co.gov slash 501 slash food assistance dash and dash resources. Jefferson County Community Table Food Pantry in Arvada sits at 8555 West 57th Avenue, a short drive west of Wadsworth Boulevard. It's open noon to 345 p.m. Monday, Tuesday and Friday, noon to 5.45 p.m. most Wednesdays, and 10 a.m. to 3.45 p.m. Thursday. The pantry is closed the second Wednesday of every month. Call 303-424-6685 or see cotable.org. For other resources, see Jefferson County Human Services at jeffco.us slash human dash services or 303-271-1388. It's located at 900 Jefferson County Parkway in South Golden off U.S. Highway 6. Clear Creek County. Loaves and Fish, a food pantry in Clear Creek County, sits at 545 Highway 103 in Idaho Springs and is open 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thursday and Friday. The food pantry in the Health and Wellness Center, located at 1969 Minor Street in Idaho Springs, is open 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., Monday through Friday. Read more about the resources in Clear Creek via reporter Olivia Jewell Love on Colorado Community Media's website at tinyurl, tinyurl.com slash Clear Creek Food Pantry. Reach Clear Creek County Human Services at 
4052300 or at 405 Argentine Street in Georgetown or C co.clear-creek.co.us slash 113 slash human dash services. Weld County. The Fort Lupton Food and Clothing Bank sits at 421 Denver Avenue in Fort Lupton, east of U.S. Highway 85 and State Highway 52. CFLFCB.org and call 303-857-1096 for hours and more information. Reach Weld County Human Services at 2950 9th Street in Fort Lupton, 303-857-4052 or weld.gov slash government slash departments slash human dash services. Denver and remaining parts of the metro area. In the seven county metro area, including around the Denver area, but also Boulder and Broomfield communities, dial 211 for a multilingual and confidential service that can connect you to shelter, food, rent assistance, childcare, and more resources in your area. Or text your zip code to 898-211 or scroll down to live chat at unitedwaydenver.org slash community dash programs slash two dash one dash one. Colorado Starbucks baristas testify in federal trial. Case largest workers action alleging union busting by Matt Bloom, Colorado Public Radio. Starbucks broke the law when it discouraged union support at four of its stores in Colorado. A federal prosecutor said during opening arguments in the coffee company's latest labor rights trial this month. Store managers dissuaded workers from voting in favor of unionization during all staff meetings and punished pro-union baristas through write-ups and wrongful terminations, said Isabel Saveland, a National Labor Relations Board attorney representing workers from Denver and Colorado Springs. The agency is hoping to win the rehiring of three union workers, as well as secure back pay and damages for other staffers it says the company unfairly targeted. Quote, Starbucks unlawful tactics go against unionization and our country's laws, said Saveland during her opening arguments in federal court in Denver. The case is the largest legal action workers have taken against the company's alleged union busting in the wake of a wave of organizing at Starbucks locations in the state last year. Last month, a federal judge ruled in favor of workers at another union store in Denver. More than 270 of the coffee's giant, coffee giant's locations across the United States have unionized since December 2021. The first Colorado location in Superior joined Starbucks Workers Union United last April, followed by locations in Denver, Colorado Springs, and Greeley. The latest trial involves charges from two stores from Denver, 16th Avenue and Tremont Place, and Leedsdale Drive, as well as two stores in Colorado Springs, Academy Boulevard, and Flint Ridge Drive, and Brookside Street and Nevada Avenue, which the company has since shuttered. Attorneys representing Starbucks called the latest set of allegations overblown and defended the company's actions. Quote, what we're looking at is a bunch of green employees who don't like playing by the rules, said Kevin Craham, an attorney with Littler Mendelson during opening remarks. The real world has consequences and people are held accountable. The case includes six unfair labor practices in total, along with three wrongful termination complaints. An administrative law judge combined the proceedings into one trial earlier this year due to their similarities. In the wrongful firing charges, the NLRB claims Starbucks let union workers go for minor policy violations. In one case, a worker at the company's 16th and Tremont store accidentally left $40 in a lockbox unsecured overnight. On his final warning, the manager included a past tardy he had never been written up for. The employee was upset and told his managers it was all about retaliation for his union support, said Saveland. The store said, no, it wasn't. 
In another case, a Colorado Springs shift supervisor was fired for cursing at a teenage subordinate. Another employee at Leedsdale Starbucks was fired after touching a cake pop by hand and serving it to a customer after it briefly dropped onto a sanitized counter. Managers coached the employee on what to say in a written statement about the incident and then later used it against her during her termination, Savlin said. Starbucks attorneys said the firings were justified. A five-second rule doesn't apply at Starbucks, Craham said. Just because employees support unionization doesn't mean they get to break the rules. The company's attorneys pushed back against allegations of unfair labor practices. Workers alleged the company unfairly enforced workplace policies against union supporters, which would be a violation of federal law. In one case, a union supporter was told to remove a Starbucks Workers United shirt they wore to work. Managers also took down a union brochure that workers posted on a break room bulletin board. It's not a billboard for anybody to come in and put up what they wish, Cram said. And in all of these incidents, workers were not held accountable in the slightest. The trial was expected to last through March 17th and included include testimony from workers and store managers involved in some of the incidents. On March 13th, the NLRB presented its first witness, Bradley Kurtz, a barista at the Starbucks on Academy in Flint Ridge in Colorado Springs. Saveland played a 90-minute recording that Kurtz took during a captive audience meeting the store's manager held ahead of the store's union election. In it, managers are heard discussing the changes that come along with forming a union. Managers in the tape said electing a union would potentially have a negative impact on employee benefits. Shortly before the captive audience meeting, Kurtz, a union organizer, had explained to a store manager that workers would be organizing and asked if the manager wanted to take part in a press conference he was planning to announce the vote. I wanted this to be a bipartisan effort, Kurtz testified. What did he say? Savlin asked. He had some phone calls he needed to make, Kurtz said, and I, and I think he gave me a hug. This week's trial comes as many Starbucks Workers United stores in Colorado struggle to get their first contracts from the company. Both the union and company have traded blame for delays. Last year, workers went on strike to protest the stalls and shut down at least three Colorado Starbucks locations. The union had said it plans to take similar actions again if negotiations don't move forward. SBWU have called the delays quote, an unprecedented union-busting campaign, and have promised to fight the actions in future court battles. Starbucks is currently being prosecuted for over 1,400 violations of federal labor law and has been found guilty of violating labor laws across the country, the union said in a statement about this week's trial in Denver. This hearing is yet another example of workers and the National Labor Relations Board holding Starbucks accountable for their actions. This story is from CPR News, a nonprofit news source used by permission. For more and to support Colorado Public Radio, visit cpr.org. More housing options can help small businesses succeed in Colorado's economy thrive. Local Voices. Guest column, Liz Geiselman. As housing practice. As housing prices and cost of rent continues to soar throughout Colorado, so does the strain on our small businesses. The consequences of the housing crisis we find ourselves in ripples throughout the communities across Colorado, hurting families, businesses, and our economy. I've lived and worked in Jefferson County for the last 25 years as the CEO of a manufacturing small business, and I've experienced firsthand the ramifications of the housing crisis. While Jeffco is a beautiful place to live with local shops and scenic views, it's housing. Expenses have risen to be 62% higher than the national average, and the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment is $2,171, making it hard for my employees to live in the same community where they work. The lack of affordable options places a heavy burden on my employees. 
Like many Colorado workers on the Front Range, my employees have to commute about an hour each way to get to work. Not only does that daily commute increase traffic on the highways during rush hour, it also forces my employees to absorb additional costs that hurt their ability to provide for themselves and their families. Our employees that live a distance from our headquarters and rely on childcare are put in a difficult position. A long commute is just one example of how, among many of how the lack of affordable options hurts my small business. I've adapted to the needs of my employees by making their work schedules more flexible, but there's a limit to how much my small business could bear. It's become nearly impossible to keep up with the cost of housing and adjusting salaries to accommodate unreasonably high costs of living is unsustainable and unfair to small business owners. Other businesses in the manufacturing industry based in Golden have encountered similar problems, and many have explored moving out of Colorado to reduce their overhead costs. If costs of living don't come down, this could eventually trickle down to small businesses and incentivize them to leave in order to save money, hurting Colorado's economy. Small businesses make up about 80% of Colorado's economy, and losing small businesses because of high costs of living will have lasting consequences for decades to come. If we continue moving in this direction, communities will lose vital subsects of professions and families will end up decentralized. Jefferson County has been slow to react to the housing crisis despite housing many manufacturing businesses like mine. And it's time for the state to work with communities across Colorado to create more affordable housing options. This problem has become too big for counties and cities to do this alone, and we need to solve the housing crisis now. To address these challenges, we need to create more different types of housing that will help create more options for low and moderate income families. Solving the housing crisis should be Colorado's top priority to help small businesses bounce back. By working together and investing in more housing options, we can create a more vibrant and sustainable community for all Coloradans. Liz Geiselman is the CEO of Rocky Mountain Regents in Golden and the former board chair of the West Metro Chamber and Jeffco EDC. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.